How much is that doggy in the window? The one with the waggedy tail. How much is that doggy in the window? I do hope that doggy is for sale. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Tobolowski Files, a series of stories about life, love, and the entertainment industry as told by actor Stephen Tobolowski. My name is David Chen. I'm editor-at-large at SlashFilm.com. And joining us today, he is the man who played Pete in the movie In Country, Stephen Tobolowski. Stephen, how are you doing today, sir? I'm doing very good. I have such strong memories of Pete, David, that you, you probably had no idea you were touching on. When we shot In Country, which is about Vietnam vets coming home from war, and it, it's a very powerful movie, we were shooting in Paducah, Kentucky during a heat wave. And this is not hyperbola, but outside it was 118 degrees. And we wished we would have shot outside because we were shooting inside in a diner with no air conditioning, where with all the lights and equipment and people, it was 150 degrees, 150, 150. We had to have medical people on the set in case anyone fainted. Everyone except for me, Pete. Because when you see that movie, Pete, I have a tattoo painted on my chest and the tattoo would melt inside of the diner. So they spirited me across the street to the vacuum cleaner store, which was air conditioned. And Pete lay there in cool comfort until I was called to the set. Well, here's a question, Stephen. Is what was that tattoo of? That's what I want to know. The tattoo was of my life. It was of my car and where I grew up. It, it had the whole story of my wow, life on my chest. So it was very intricate and would have been ruined by high temperatures. It took a couple hours to paint it on, yeah. Wow. It well, you, been... you got better treatment than Bruce Willis did in that film, apparently. I did. Actually, I did. Yeah. Very nice. Stephen, let me ask you a question. Are you a fan of the Tobolowsky Files? Well, David, if I were to think about that honestly, I would say, yes, sir. I am a fan of the Tobolowsky Files. That is really weird because I also am a fan as well. What a coincidence. And I bet <laughs> a lot of people listening to this episode right now are also fans of the show called the Tobolowsky Files. Well, guess what, guys? It's your lucky day because not only are we going to be making a Tobolowsky Files movie that you can support right now, but you also have the opportunity to get two bonus episodes of the Tobolowski Files by backing us on Kickstarter. You can find our Kickstarter project at theprimaryinstinct.com. That's theprimaryinstinct.com. Yeah, you have to add the the or you end up at a porno site. Exactly. You don't want to end up at primaryinstinct.com because you'll be getting a whole completely different kind of primary instinct. That's right. Check out theprimaryinstinct.com uh, to back our project. Now, we should say... Uh, we are already fully backed. We've raised $40,000 since the last time uh, we recorded an episode of The Tobolowski Files. It has been absolutely incredible to see your support. Stephen, what are some uh, of the stories that you can recall from the last few weeks as we've been launching this Kickstarter? There's been this outpouring of support. Is there any, any memories that you have? Every day, every day I get letters from people who've contributed. And one that I read just yesterday really moved me. It was someone who was saying that they were going through a rough time in their life, but they still contributed $1 
because he had enjoyed the last three, four years of listening to the podcast for free, and he thought he wanted to just do something symbolic to say, Stephen, just to know that I, I support you. And it moved me so much that even though he was having a very bad time of it, he still threw his his support behind us. It very touching. Yeah, definitely. Every little bit helps. We really appreciate it. Every amount helps. We have contributions from one dollar all the way up to ten thousand dollars. Someone actually donated ten thousand dollars for the. For and the l- let me mention, we we have another really great prize that's still available. I don't know if there are any collectors out there, but I am donating my original original Groundhog Day script. To the Kickstarter. This is not one from Staples. This is one with all the different color pages and my notes in it. The original script from Groundhog Day. If anyone is a collector, it is still available. Check that out and check out the Kickstarter project at theprimaryinstinct.com. One other thing before we dive into the show, Stephen, and that is that part of the film that we're making about the Tobolowski Files is going to involve a live show at the Moore Theater in Seattle uh, on May 3rd, 2014. That's uh, at the Moore Theater on May 3rd, 2014. Uh, We've actually sold out of our allotment of uh, tickets to this show through the Kickstarter, but you can actually go buy tickets to this show at stgpresents.org. That's stgpresents.org. Just go to the Moore Theater on May 3rd. Tickets for the Tobolowski Files. Uh, This performance will be filmed for the movie, The Primary Instinct. And uh, it's going to be pretty insane. There's going to be a multi-camera shoot. There's going to be a thousand people in the audience. It's going to be awesome. Come be a part of Tobolowski Files history at the Moore Theater on May 3rd. Stephen, we've been uh, performing in Seattle a few times by now. It's always been wonderful, hasn't it? It's been great, and there's nothing like the Moore. The Moore Theater is one of the prettiest venues I've seen in the country. It's gorgeous. So beautiful and so amazing. And we hope to see you guys there on May 3rd uh, because it's going to be a night of storytelling and filming like you've never seen before. So really appreciate it if you would check out stgpresents.org and come see us at the Moore Theater on May 3rd, 2014. You know, Stephen, people who are listening to the Tobolowski Files probably think that we record this show in a lavish studio uh, <laughs> with people sitting on the side peeling grapes for us and feeding them to us. Yeah. But in fact, uh, we record this show in the comfort of our living rooms over Skype. Yep. And uh, sometimes there's a lot of noise going on outside. It can be unavoidable. It can be really challenging when there's plane flying overhead. You know, Stephen, I think you're actually getting some work done in your home. That's kind of noisy as well, isn't it? That's terrible. It's really terrifying the neighbors. We we have, uh, for those of you who listen to the podcast, you remember the trees where Al-Qaeda squirrel was throwing things at me and where the parrots were lodging. We tore out the entire backyard. Now Al-Qaeda squirrel is next door throwing things at me, and we even tore out the back house where I sat on my bench where I moved my bench and saw those uh, beautiful parrots. And, and David, you know, it's amazing. It, it was sad at first, but I got to tell you, in clearing out the boxes of crap from the back house, Anne and I unearthed a strata of sediment that speaks of a bygone era, the age of rat funerals. David, we found poems, pictures, burial apparatus, even photos of a departed rat in a shoebox. Now, the boys started with pets early, 
through no design of ours, the animals we brought into the house moved up the evolutionary ladder, starting with fish, then frogs, then lizards, then snakes. I got to say, snakes was a particularly bad period. Then turtles. I guess we're lucky we skipped amoebas. As for the turtle, we are still feeding it. A worm a day for 17 years. My son, Robert, who is now 24, has grown up to be a scientist. He came home the other day and said the turtles could live forever unless affected by some outside force. I was thinking the outside force could be me not going to the pet store to buy worms anymore. When we started with the turtle, a styrofoam cup of 12 worms cost $4.50, and that was in 1990 currency. Inflation has hit everything, including cup of worms. Now they cost $7.60, $7.60 for 12 worms. That is a real increase of over 40%, making them an area of the economy that has been hit hardest by the recession. Now, I know no one wants to think about the plight of the worm farmer, but most of them probably had to give up and go back to growing marijuana. The snake period happened by accident. It was born of an intersection of a boy's natural love for horrible things with her father's distorted memory of his happy past with water moccasins. The first snake was a garter snake. Yes, this is common. Garter snakes are the gateway snake. William named it Steve. We put it in a terrarium. A terrarium is what you call a fish tank that you keep outside, which turned out to be an inspired decision because Steve turned out to be Stephanie. One night, he gave birth to nine snakes, seven alive, two dead. I buried the two dead snakes in the rose bushes. I told William about the new snakes, and he was thrilled. He asked if he could keep one of the babies. He went out to the terrarium. Another baby snake was dead. I pulled it out before Steve could eat it. I buried it in the rose garden. By the time I was done, William had picked out a baby he wanted to keep. He named it Steve. I was concerned about the high mortality rate in the terrarium. Maybe there was a lack of food, so I bought a few crickets, scattered them around randomly. This was a mistake. The crickets started eating the snakes. See, this is the problem with the food chain. It's a two-way street. The next morning, there were two more dead snakes. I buried them in the rose garden. I felt guilty. I couldn't escape the reality that I was running a gulag for snakes. I had to release them into the wild so they would have the opportunity to die on their own. William was upset. He wanted to at least keep Steve the Younger. I told him no. He cried. He was angry. And then he relented when he saw that it looked like a cricket had eaten off the end of little Steve's tail. He was far more upset by parting with this snake that he had only for one day than over the mass grave in the roses. Maybe it was because he gave him a name like Adam in the Garden of Eden, naming all the animals. Maybe the job of naming something was more consequential than I suspected. William said goodbye. We released Steve into the tangle of ferns by the barbecue grill. William called out to him, Goodbye, Steve. Be strong and live. I'd like to say the lessons of Steve and Stephanie made an impression. They didn't. A year later, William wanted a rainbow boa. A boy in his kindergarten class brought one to school, and William thought it was beautiful. That night in bed, I mentioned to Anne the possibility of getting William the constrictor for Christmas Hanukkah. There was a moment of stunned silence, and then she said, 
You've got to be kidding. Can't we be done with the snakes? I know, I know, honey. I know it's just he wants it so badly. Stephen, Stephen, what does a boa eat? Um, mice, I said. Yes, mice, not crickets. So who's going to feed the boa? Not William, not me. Will you get live mice and kill them and feed the snake? Uh, probably not, I said. Well, then you probably shouldn't get a boa unless you want to bury it in the rose garden too. You're right. Sorry I brought it up. So we bought William the boa later that week. The man from the pet store said the snake ate once a month. The good news was he had already had his meal for December. That meant I had at least a couple of weeks to figure out the mouse problem. Like a page from my childhood, we didn't put the snake under the Christmas tree. No, no, no. We hid the big new terrarium in my closet. And we didn't give William the snake outright. We made it a game. Anna and I gave William a series of clues hidden all around the house and yard. He happily ran from bookcase to garage to rock in the garden. And anticipation grew. He reached the last clue under daddy's shirts. William ran upstairs. He flew into my closet. He saw the big glass case with the three-foot rainbow boa. He screamed with delight and hugged me so hard around the waist and said, Daddy, this is the happiest day of my life. Ann and I looked at one another. It was worth all of the mice in Southern California. William named the boa Fred. Ann supervised the removal of the snake from her closet. I carried the terrarium downstairs we didn't know where to put it. It was too cold to keep the snake outside. We didn't want to put it in William's bedroom on the off chance Fred could get out and attack. So we opted for a neutral space, my office, and thought proximity would help me at feeding time. Oh, dear. Feeding time. I still hadn't figured that out. I went back to the pet store and asked the young salesman how people feed their boas. He said the snakes only eat mice, but it was not advised to put a live mouse in the terrarium. The mice don't like it. They tend to freak out and attack the snake. Bites and scratches could lead to infection. He said what most snake owners do is grab a live mouse by the tail and whap it on the kitchen counter. That stuns it. Then they put the groggy mouse in the snake cage. That made me ill. I felt there had to be a special level of hell for whapping mice. The salesman said some people use mouse sickles. I asked for a consecutive translation. He showed me a package of dead mice you keep in the freezer, and you pull one out when it's feeding time, you let it get to room temperature, and then you put it in the cage. I could not imagine a world in which Anne would let me keep a box of mice in the refrigerator. I started to get the idea this snake was going to die. Desperation is the oven of half-baked ideas. I turned on the charm and asked the salesman if he would whap the mouse for me. He said, uh, no, sir, not up for that. I moved in close and turned on my best Tony Soprano charm. I said, I could pay you. He smiled and shook his head. I could pay you 50 bucks, I said. He shook his head again. I said, come on, 50 bucks a mouse? Once a month, that's a lot of walking around money. He laughed and said, no, sir, thanks. Just can't do that. I had to find someone to kill a mouse for me. I still had a week before I turned to Craigslist. My concerns with providing Fred's January dinner were met with a more compelling issue. He had a sort of eczema breakout. 
Now, I had eczema as a child, so I know how uncomfortable it could be. And I wasn't even a snake. All a snake has going for it is its skin, unless it's already been turned into a boot. I took Fred to the vet. The doctor checked him out. He said Fred had an infection caused by bacteria or parasites. He wasn't sure which it was in Fred's case. He said skin infections in snakes were very serious. The doctor asked me if I had a bathtub. I told him I did. He said I needed to give Fred three baths a day. The first and third baths in salt water, the middle bath was to be a regular warm water bath. He gave me a cream to put on Fred's sores at night before bed. And I was thinking right about then that Fred was probably going to die. Then the doctor asked me if I had ever given a snake an injection. Now there's a question I never thought I would hear in my life. I told him I had not. Doctor raised his eyebrows. He said it was tricky. He told me every night after the baths and the skin cream, I had to give Fred an injection in the fat part of his body right by the spine. The doctor said the safest way to do this was to sit on Fred's head. He warned that Fred might try to bite me in the genitals. To prevent any injuries, I needed to put a thick athletic sock over Fred's head before I sat on him. At this point, I was certain Fred was going to die. On the bright side, I probably wouldn't have to buy any mice. I gave Fred the baths. I put the medicine on his sores. I never gave him an injection. I didn't have thick enough socks. To my credit, I did sit on Fred's head. I used an old argyle over a snout for protection, and the doctor was right. He did try to bite my genitals. Of course, the question I had was, would he be trying to bite my balls if I wasn't sitting on his head? But we have to put faith in the advice of our doctors. Fred passed away shortly after the New Year. I spent the next month scouring the tub. Detergent, bleach, chlorine, it didn't matter. No one has had a bath in there since. Fred wasn't buried in the rose bushes. He died at the vet's. A very solemn doctor and nurse came into the examining room and talked to me. They told me Fred didn't make it. They asked me if I wanted to take him back home to be buried or if I wanted them to take care of it, which I'm sure meant throwing him into a dumpster behind the clinic. I told them to please take care of Fred. A week later, I got a handwritten, and I repeat, a handwritten letter from the vet. It said, Dear Stephen, I know you must be going through a difficult time with the loss of Fred. I hope you will find comfort in the happy times you two had together and the knowledge you did what you could to make his life happy. Animals give us so much joy. But sadly, they're with us for such a brief time. At this point, I wanted to introduce the doctor to my turtle. The letter continued. May you have happier days ahead filled with good memories. Your friends at the Valley Pet Hospital. We did have happier days. The death of Fred guaranteed that. William was done with snakes. Now he wanted a rat. So we moved to mammals, rats to be specific, to avoid any sibling rivalry, we had to get a rat for each boy. Robert and William named their rats Roberta 
and Willa accordingly. Willa had a brief tenure. She died unexpectedly during William's fifth birthday party. It was horrible. It was one of the few times I had to resort to dad strategies that one might find in a Disney movie. I told Anne I would run to the pet store before William found out about Willa and buy a new rat. Rats look alike, sort of, and maybe William wouldn't notice. We could avoid the tragedy of a five-year-old losing his beloved pet on his birthday. The plan didn't work out. William found the dead rat before I left. He began crying hysterically. I explained that I was off to get him a new rat. He said that wasn't the same. Willa was dead. He loved Willa. Even though he only had her for a few days, the bonds of man and rat run deep. I have to say I was proud of him. It spoke to a non-fickle nature. It is a trait that I'm sure would leave him with a broken heart many times in the future. But in my book, it's the only way to be. William asked if we could make a coffin and have a rat funeral for Willa. I agreed. Fortunately, Anne wore size seven and a half shoes, just big enough for a rat plus tail. William wrote a short goodbye message. He asked if I could read something from my prayer book. Now, I know in Judaism you're not supposed to read Kaddish, the prayer for the dead, over an animal. So I stole a theme from my rabbi, Meyer Schimmel, who was once asked to conduct a funeral for a parrot. I dug a hole. We put Willa in Anne's shoebox. William said his words. I held my blue Jewish prayer book as a prop and said, We have to remember when God created the world. The rat was created before man. God made man at the end of creation and chose him to be the custodian of the animals. That means caring for them in life, treating them with kindness, caring for them in death. May our willow rest in peace. Willow was gone. I no longer had to run to the pet store. I walked, and I bought Willa 2. Willa 2 was not as nice as Willa 1. She had a terrible temperament with cause. She was pregnant. Unfortunately, we didn't know this at the time of purchase. Again with the pregnant animals. First the snake, now the rat. I had to ask myself the unpleasant question, what is going on at the pet store? Two days later, we had 13 rats. So now the household helped 13 rats, a cat, a turtle, a lizard, a skink, and five dying goldfish. The boys were overjoyed. Anne was not. She went back to the pet store and asked the manager how old the baby rats had to be before she brought them back. The manager said they didn't take back rats. Anne's neck began to lengthen. She began to go into Terminator mode. She said, I don't think you understand me. I asked, how old do the rats have to be before I bring them back? I bought one rat, not 13. The manager saw this was not the ditch he wanted to die in and said, Ma'am, you can bring them back, but we can't promise they will be sold as pets. Excuse me, said Anne. Rats that aren't sold as pets usually become snake food. Right, said Anne. I'll bring them back this afternoon. We did what we could to find new homes for the baby rats. Even though we hadn't named them, we weren't comfortable in calling them snake food. We found homes for three of them. Those three were victims of second thoughts. They ended up coming back home with us. We sent Willa Two and her brood back to the pet store. We kept Roberta. The boys named the three new rats Ashley, Tuxie, and Midnight. I was pleased. 
If nothing else, it showed the area of the brain reserved for naming animals was growing. We bought cages and rat litter. We set them up in the living room. There is no design motif that can comfortably accommodate rat cages. The room can either look like a preschool or a research laboratory. And it's hard to explain to dinner guests where the squeaks are coming from. The worst moments came when Ashley escaped. That's when we became aware of the fine line between household pet and vermin. She was somewhere in the house. We looked everywhere, nothing, and said we had no choice. Ashley had no food or water out in the human world. Eventually, she would die and start to stink. We could hunt for her for another hour, but then we would have to close all the doors and bring in our cat Bandit and let her do what cats have done from the beginning of time, or at least the beginning of cat time. William was upset. Once again, he lost his rat. I tried to comfort him by telling him that we could have another rat funeral, even if Bandit ate Ashley and there was no body left to bury. William got more upset. The clock ticked, no rat, and brought in Bandit. We closed the doors within 30 seconds. 30 seconds, Bandit's body went into stealth mode. She crept up to the television set, dipped her paw behind a row of Winnie the Pooh videotapes, and whipped out Ashley. She tossed the rat three feet in the air and ran up, caught her, plopped her back in her cage. Ashley was alive and kicking. We rewarded Bandit with undying admiration and an extra can of cat food. Sidebar. It was probably Bandit that healed the void in my heart left by the pooch. Bandit was a brilliant cat. From that day on, she understood for some strange reason we were trying to protect the rats. She battled her cat instincts, which I'm sure was difficult. She occasionally would watch Tuxy running in the rat wheel, then look up at me in confusion and emotional pain like a recovering alcoholic in Norway during the winter. She never attacked, even in play. Occasionally, she would sit in front of their cages and stare at them for hours, but I figured that was no worse than me reading the Rob report. Bandit was my companion. She would sit at my side when I went out back to read, she commented on all the new birds in the yard. Once we were out of town and had a house sinner come to put water in the turtle tank, she forgot to turn the hose off. The tank overflowed and the turtle floated away. When we got home, I discovered the empty tank and shrieked. I knew the boys would never forgive me. They loved that turtle, even though they never looked at it or fed it. Bandit ran out to check my cry of alarm. She stood on her hind legs and peered into the empty tank. Then she dashed off into the yard, and within a minute she began meowing. She was standing in the middle of ankle-deep grass next to the turtle. From then on, I called Bandit my shepherd cat. And the wonders of Bandit didn't stop there. After I broke my neck in Iceland, Bandit, most mysteriously began to sleep across my throat as if she were trying to heal me in some cat magic way. We had Bandit for 12 years. She vanished one morning and never returned. She left another hole in my heart. We were lucky to have had her. She forced me to redefine my expectations of cat intelligence. I'm sure the three cats we have now are just as smart as Bandit in their own way, which probably has something to do with sleep research. The biggest of our rats was Midnight. He was the alpha male. He was almost as big as a wharf rat. I got my first dose of the difference between him and the other rats one morning when I was feeding. 
I opened his cage. Midnight jumped on my hand, ran up my arm, ran across my shoulders, down my other arm, and dove into the bag of rat food. It was creepy, but ingenious. I had to respect his ability to put two and two together. I tried the experiment again, but without the bag of food. Midnight once again surprised me. He ran up my arm and stopped. He sat on my shoulder and stayed. I began to walk around the room. Midnight balanced on his new perch. He loved it. It became our routine. Open the cage, up the arm, onto my shoulder, survey the world. Midnight upped the cute factor one day by running up my arm, up to my shoulder, then diving into the breast pocket of my flannel shirt. He situated himself so his head popped out. And there he stayed while I did my chores. The dismount was easy. I would walk over to his cage, open his door, straighten my arm, which was some sort of rat cue he understood. He would run out of my pocket, up my chest, down my arm, and dove into his cage. I always fed him afterwards for being so agreeable. I loved Midnight. He was clearly the best rat I could imagine. It's one thing to be a smart rat, but it's another thing to be a smart rat on cue. I was working on a new television pilot called Gene Pool. It was a comedy about scientists. And in the script, the leading actor had several scenes where he asked his lab rat for advice about women. Mercifully, the rat didn't talk back. Maybe that was coming in season two. Our actor held out his hand and talked to nothing during rehearsals. I asked our producers when the rat was arriving. They looked at each other and gave me the raised eyebrow. They said they didn't have the rat yet. Hopefully he would be here the day of the shoot. I said, huh, gosh, my rat Midnight does that sort of thing all the time. Uh, does what thing? Said one of our producers with interest. Oh, you know, I said. He sits in your hand. He jumps in and out of his cage. You have a trained rat? Well, I said, he has no formal education. He does it on his own. You hold out your hand. He jumps up. You lower it. He jumps down. It's easy. Our executive producer leaned into me and said, Stephen, do you think we could use your rat for the show? Well, sure, I said. He'd probably get a kick out of it. The next day, I brought Midnight to the set. The cast stood around him. They smiled, but kept their distance. He was like cute radioactivity. The producers explained the scene and what they wanted Midnight to do. I showed our leading man how to hold his hand out. They did the scene. Midnight was perfect. No problem. Everybody was laughing and clapping. Our exec came up to me and put his arm around me. He said, Midnight was remarkable. He was a star. The entire production was enormously grateful. Then he got very secretive in a Hollywood sort of way and said he would give me a more tangible expression of his appreciation tomorrow. He winked at me and walked away. One of my fellow actors overheard the conversation. He ran up and said, man, you have done it. Done what, I said. You found the goose that lays the golden egg. I don't follow, I said. Do you know how much money you just saved them? The trained rat would probably run a couple of grand. The rat trainer, 5K. The ASPCA rep on set, probably a grand. The hazardous materials crew to dispose of the rat feces, another couple grand. You saved them no less than ten, maybe $12,000, my friend. That little rat gave you a windfall. I bet you walk away from here with a couple extra Gs out of midnight's performance. Well, this was great news. Finally, one of our animals was earning its keep. Show day arrived. 
I brought Midnight to the set. The producers gathered around him. Here he is, the star. You're all right too, Tobolowsky, but Midnight is a genius. The exec pulled me aside and confided they left a little something special for me in my dressing room. I headed upstairs, more than happy to play second fiddle to midnight, especially if it meant the goodwill of the producers, especially if that goodwill amounted to, say, $2,000, give or take. Never let it be said, Hollywood doesn't take care of its own. I got to my dressing room, and there was an envelope on my makeup table. It simply said, from us. I opened it. No check inside. There was just a note. It said there was a token of appreciation for midnight on my couch. I walked over to investigate. Nestled amidst the cushions were $25 in rat toys. Never let it be said that Hollywood doesn't take care of its own. The real reward was the show that night. Midnight got the biggest laughs of the evening, and for the curtain call, he was brought out last and got an unsolicited standing ovation. The producers came up and said, a star is born. And it was true. He was a star in his own time, a time too short. Midnight died a week later, but he lived a long life for a rat, two and a half years. We were lucky to have known him. He changed the way I saw his rat kin. I understood how they could wrestle the world away from the dinosaurs. Now, we all know rats are clever. Inbal bin Ami Bartal, a psychologist at the University of Chicago, did an experiment that revealed far more. Rats forsook food and even chocolate to free another rat trapped in a cage. They had empathy and understood freedom. That's one step away from Gandhi in my book. We had another rat funeral. William got a piece of quartz from his rock collection for a headstone. He built a toy rat from his Tinker Toy set to go in the shoebox with Midnight for their trip to the Rainbow Bridge. I miss the fella. There will never be another like him. I talked to my brother a couple of years ago. He was despondent. His pet rat, Rambo, had died. Paul said, you'll never understand. He was my best friend. Paul recalled the wonders of Rambo sitting upstairs on his lap while he read, listening to records. Bill Haley and the Comets and Doc Watson were Rambo's favorite. As I listened to my brother, I heard in his grief what all these critters give us. The unexpected chance to love and mourn, to recognize the precious, despite the rising cost of worms. I'm not certain of many things in the world, but I am positive that I am not the only one who has taken part in a rat funeral. Just among my fellow actors, waiting in the green room for an entrance, I have heard stories of family funerals in the backyards for rats, mice, gerbils. I've heard stories of goldfishes, burials at sea, or the nearest flushable body of water. Beth's extended family owned a pet cemetery in Mississippi for a few years. This year, Anne and I went to Sally Gap outside of Dublin. It's a wild, prehistoric landscape that was used in the battle scenes in Braveheart. On the edge of this wilderness is a glorious mansion called Powers Court. 
It has beautiful formal gardens, topiary, statuary. Anna and I got there one afternoon before a closing time, and the ticket lady let us in to have a quick look before the guards threw us out. We ran from the sculpture gardens to the Japanese gardens to the rose gardens, and I made a left turn on the way up the hill when I should have made a right turn, and I ended up standing in a pet cemetery, complete with carved tombstones. And one of the stones recalled a dog named Doodles Chow, who died in 1938. The stone read, Loved and faithful friend for 14 years. You've gone, old friend. A grief too deep for tears fills all the emptiness you've left behind. Gone is the dear companionship of years, the love that passed all love of humankind. It's heartrending. The cemetery has stones for family cats, birds, even horses. I had no idea who the animals or their owners were, but their anonymity gave their voices more clarity. I dare anyone to walk through that section of the garden and not be moved. Why? The history of honoring animals in death goes back a long way, not necessarily to the animal's benefit. The ancient Egyptians mummified cats and dogs for burials along with their kings and pharaohs. The standard explanation is that the deceased would need their companions in the afterlife. But that wasn't the whole story. Archaeologists uncovered a gigantic dog cemetery at Saqqara that had 7 million animal mummies. Right outside the town, there was a cemetery for the ibis, the bird that was thought to be an incarnation of the god Thoth. There were cemeteries dedicated for bulls, thought to be incarnations of the sun god, Ray. The Egyptians weren't really animal lovers. They thought the animals were incarnations of their gods, and more. They thought animals were the living messengers between the gods and man. A giant animal industry started as early as 3000 B.C., Dogs, cats, birds, bulls, baboons, among others, were bred for the sole purpose of sacrifice and mummification. They sacrificed the ibis and the baboon into extinction. That didn't stop them. When they ran low on the real thing, the Egyptians developed another industry to make fake animals to be buried with you for a price. Here's how it works. You go to a priest, you request a divine messenger, you pay the money and a phony animal mummy would be made in your name. The Hebrews escaped from Egypt, but not from the practice of animal sacrifice. The specifics of animal sacrifice are laid out in great detail in the book of Leviticus, with a difference. Even in early times, it was always about the barbecue. Judaism was not solely focused on the taking of an animal's life. It was about the meal afterwards. The animal that was sacrificed was cooked up, first for the priests and then for the rest of the party. The priests wanted the aroma to rise to heaven to please God. I suspect the direct descendant of this tradition were Sundays at my Aunt Hermine's. After Sunday school, we drove over and ate brisket until we exploded. When the first temple was destroyed around 425 B.C. or B.C.E., almost a million people were killed. Those that remained were sent into exile. The holy places of animal sacrifice were destroyed. The religion was at a turning point. The traditional teaching is that the animal sacrifice element of Judaism was transitioned into something that still exists today, the prayer book. 
prayers replace the lives of animals. Could it be that my brother's ramblings about Rambo and the tears I shed over Bandit and the Pooch had echoes of the divine? Is our attachment to animals a way of finding the holy on earth, of recreating the garden? The presence of an animal transforms us into a new Adam. We give our animal a name and through our love and care look for forgiveness and another chance of paradise. animals a way to understand God himself. Tugger the turtle's tenure in the terrarium for the last two decades eating nothing but worms could be a retelling of the 40 years in the wilderness in the book of Numbers. From Fred the snake's perspective, I turned his whole life into the book of Job, including the skin disease and ending up on the dung heap. Animals can also be the source of miracles. After midnight, we were done with the rats. However, we were not done with alternate mammals. We substituted rat cages in the living room for rabbit hutches. We had five rabbits and three giant hutches existing in complete disharmony with the grand piano in the fireplace. Dinner guests found the rabbits far less creepy than the rats. The mother rabbit was Blackberry. She was a genius, like Bandit. The two of them used to play together. Bandit thought Blackberry was the fastest cat she ever saw. I would sit on the love seat pretending to read. I couldn't stop watching the two of them. Bandit would crouch like she was going to attack. Then Blackberry would charge. I never saw a cat jump so high. And then it was off to the races, over the furniture, down the hallway. Then they got tired. They would rest together side by side. Then they would start up again. There was nothing more hilarious than watching the two of them dashing full speed one side of the house to the other, then like synchronized swimmers change directions and dive into my lap for a few quick pets. Anne found a rabbit woman in San Diego that raised giant Angora rabbits. They looked like huge fluffy snowballs with ears. I drove down there to get William a birthday present, a baby Angora. I had to wean him off of the lizards and snakes. I knew from experience how difficult it was to get off of the hard stuff. While I was looking at the babies for sale, a big rabbit lay in his cage watching me. It wasn't just a red-eyed stare. There, there was an intelligence in his eyes and a sadness. I asked the rabbit woman if the big rabbit had a story. She said, no story. No one wants grown rabbits. He watches all the other rabbits leaving. He knows he's staying here. I said, can I hold him? Sure, she said. I pulled him out of his cage. He was enormous. I held him in my arms. He had no fear, no expectations. He looked at me with a steady, calm gaze. I put him back in his cage, started looking at the babies again for William, and found a beautiful little female and was cuddling her in her arms, Anne looked up at me and said, Oh, she's so beautiful. Can we take her? It was hard to say no. We paid the woman for the baby. 
I thanked her for showing us the rabbits, and I looked back at the big fellow again and said, And we have to take him, too. Both Anne and the rabbit woman were surprised. I said, I can't help it, baby. This rabbit is telling me something. I don't know what it is, but I think he's a good one. We called the big rabbit Thistle after one of the rabbits in Watership Down. This was one of William's favorite bedtime books. I read it to him four times in a row. Maybe that explained the rabbit cages in the living room. That book should come with a warning like on packages of cigarettes. Do not read aloud. Thoughts of Hazel the rabbit can lead to spontaneous crying. Thistle proved to be one of the great rabbits. He wasn't nimble like Blackberry. He was too big. But he was kind. He was filled with rabbit gratitude. It gave him a sort of glow. When people came over and took in our menagerie, they always settled down in front of Thistle. For want of a better word, he had charisma. When I let Thistle out of his hutch, he would settle down beside me while I read. He was a deep thinker. We enjoyed two years in relative peace. Then Thistle got sick. Most rabbits have a disease called pasturella. It can be fatal. Fortunately, it usually remains dormant. It often manifests itself as an upper respiratory infection. It's like a cold, but sometimes it gets worse. The rabbit develops abscesses. Thistle got the worst form of the disease. We took him to a vet that specialized in rabbits. She thought the only way to save him was with immediate surgery. Anesthesia is always a risk with rabbits. They're very delicate creatures. Here, Thistle's size was an advantage. The first surgery revealed Thistle was overwhelmed by infection. The doctor could not remove all of the dying tissue. Over the next six weeks, Thistle had two more surgeries. The doctor met with Anne and me. She said Thistle was getting weaker. We could only try one more surgery to remove the internal abscesses. She pulled out a Xerox of an article from a science journal. She said she was reading about an experimental treatment. It was a procedure discovered by the Egyptians over 5,000 years ago. It was rediscovered through the translation of the hieroglyphics in a temple. Modern medicine had reached its limits with thistle, but we could try this as a last resort. Honey, raw, unfiltered, and unpasteurized. The ancient Egyptians wrote that it had a remarkable curative property. The doctor said she would do one more surgery. She would remove the rest of the infection, and we could try to cure thistle with honey. Two days later, Thistle was brought into the examination room. He was a mess. So weak, so frail. The doctor said one-third of his insides had to be removed. She put a stent in Thistle's chest and another at the back of his thigh, and she handed me a large syringe. She said twice a day, I had to inject pure, raw honey into Thistle's chest until it ran out the stent at the back of his thigh. The goal was to fill his body cavity with honey. The doctor said it was completely experimental. No guarantees. And I thought of Fred the snake. This time I would not fail. I got raw honey from the health food store. Anne ran for cover as I held Thistle by the scruff and injected him until honey ran out the back of his leg. This was the drill. Twice a day. Thistle never fought me. This at least told me that the procedure wasn't painful. I took Thistle back a week later for a checkup. No infection. 
We continued the treatments. After a month, the vet was astonished. Thistle was gaining weight. New tissue was growing back. The honey was not only antibiotic, but became a matrix for whatever type of tissue was damaged. Muscle and skin and fur were growing again. Thistle began to hop around his cage after 10 weeks. He looked like his old self. The vet told me the treatment worked beyond her expectations. There was no return of infection. It was a miracle. I called Thistle my million-dollar rabbit not only referencing his recovery, but the vet bill. Thistle had a long and happy rabbit life filled with carrots and good health. The experimental treatment from the tombs of ancient Egypt has since been adopted by hospitals, the military, and fire departments around the country for remedy of wounds and burns. Despite his narrow escape from certain death, Despite memories of syringes filled with raw honey still fresh in my mind, I was surprised when Thistle died. I thought he would be with me forever. I buried him in the rose garden. I cried as I laid him into the ground and whispered a prayer for him. I planted two new roses above him so his beauty would continue in a new form. When I finished planting, I went to fill the watering can so I could give the roses a good first drink. I pulled the hose out and snagged on a pile of rocks sitting by a clump of ferns. I went to untangle the tangle. I dislodged some of the rocks and I jumped back. There, sitting under a rock, was a garter snake with part of its tail missing. He calmly slid back into the ferns. I know, I know, the first rule of reptiles, all garter snakes look alike. But that tail made me believe it was Steve the Younger. I couldn't wait to tell William his prayer was heard. Be strong and live. Be strong and live. I watered my new roses. Whether or not was Steve, the lesson of snake and rabbit is part of the same story. Death eventually takes us all, unless life surprises us by returning when we least expect it. That was The Days of Rat Funerals Are Over, a series of stories by actor Stephen Tobolowsky, and you're listening to The Tobolowsky Files. You know, Stephen, it was George Carlin that once said, every pet is a tiny tragedy waiting to happen. <laughs> how, do you keep, uh, how do you keep getting pets even though they seem to break your heart on a regular basis? I think, uh, you know, like I said, it's, it, you get the chance to rebuild Eden. We have, we have three great cats now and a uh, turtle and two rabbits, and we love them dearly. You know, there's, the thing about love, David, is it doesn't get used up like eating a pie and the pie is gone. 
the more you use love, the more you get love. Mm. So it, it always is nice. I'm going to have to rethink my love allocation then <laughs> based on this new information. Maybe. Well, Stephen, thank you for sharing that story with us as usual. Uh, you know, if people want to hear more episodes of The Tobolowski Files, you want to tell them where they can find that, Stephen? It's simple. I think you could go to either thetobolowskifiles.com or tobolowskifiles.com, but you have to spell my name right or you'll end up somewhere bad. And how do you do that, Stephen? Ed is capital T as in Tom, O, B as in boy, O-L-O-W-S-K-Y, not I. That's the Russian spelling. All right. Well, just go to thetobolowskifiles.com to find more episodes of our show. We've actually uh, made available the entire back catalog of the Tobolowski Files, all 60-plus hours available for your free download. A lot of people have asked about why Episode 1 of the Tobolowski Files is missing. And the answer to that question is, that was a pretty rough episode. It is our lost <laughs> Wait a minute. I, I, I thought it was an electronic transfer problem, David. I had oh, no yeah, idea. Yeah, there was... yeah, that's what oh. I mean. That's what I mean oh. when I say rough, <laughs> of course. Well, in any case, uh, all I have to say about that, for people who are completists and want the entire catalog, all I have to say is, just wait, ladies and gentlemen, just wait. We will uh, probably be able to soon get you something that will sate your needs for completism. But uh, in the meantime, speaking of being complete, uh, if you want to get two bonus episodes of The Tobolowski Files, go to theprimaryinstinct.com and support our Kickstarter project to make The Tobolowski Files into a movie. Uh, Run, don't walk, because by the time you're listening to this, there's only going to be a few days left where you have this opportunity. And I know there's probably a lot of you out there uh, who heard about the Kickstarter project, thought you'd wait. Well, the time is now, guys, because if you, by the time you're listening to this, it may already be over. But in case it's not, go to theprimaryinstinct.com and support the Kickstarter. Uh, this is probably going to be your last chance. So I do hope you guys will check it out and uh, join us on this wild and crazy adventure. Thank you guys for listening to The Tobolowski Files. We will see you guys later. Adios. In the window The one With the waggedy Tail How much Is that doggy In the window I do hope That doggy 